I do love wine. <laughs> Sweet. You're on the right podcast then. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Welcome to the In Vino Fabulum podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. We're your co-hosts for the In Vino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are a number of tales to be shared and told about women and wine. So this is the space and podcast to offer just such narrative. Welcome to today's episode. We're excited to chat with Cheryl Stanley. Talk about her journey, becoming a lecturer in food and beverage management, and founding her own consulting company, I think it has something to do with wine. Cheryl is a lecturer in food and beverage management at the Hotel School Cornell Johnson College of Business, and she received her Master's of Science degree from Texas Tech College of Human Sciences and Hospitality and Retail Management, and her Bachelor of Science degree from Cornell University School of Hotel Administration. Her primary area of teaching is in beverage management within the food and beverage operations, and she is also founding partner in a consulting company, and we're going to hear a little bit more about what it takes to start a company like that tonight. And the other thing that I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about is that she is a certified sommelier with the Court of Master Sommeliers Level 3 with honors from the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. Uh, with that, Cheryl, um, is there anything else that you would like to share you know, beyond the uh, bio that I shared about yourself and the work that you do? I love wine, but yes. that's a given. <laughs> no, I love, I love wine and food. Um, I had my first sip of wine at the ripe old age of six. Um, my first glass of wine at the age of 12, when I was very, uh, wrongly served at my stepbrother's graduation from college. Uh, so yeah, it's been a a fun journey since then. So, um, beyond having the early tastes of wine, can you share a little bit about what, you know, you kind of your pathway, um, into this field as far as studying, you know, choosing to study that in college and the your career path along the way? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I came from a household where alcohol was not, uh, in it in any way, shape or form. Um, my mom did not drink around my brother and I, and, you know, so I grew up with my mom, my parents were divorced. My dad, he did, he loved his beer. Um, he had multiple dogs and they were all named after different beers. And, um, so that's where I first got to taste wine, but it was really through my grandmother. Um, she, you know, wine was a part of her nightly routine. Uh, she loved Louis Jadot Puy Fousse. That's what she drank every night. Uh, and, and then I started working in restaurants and I worked for a place called Krogan's Bar and Grill in Walnut Creek, California. And it was just the most amazing experience for me in at that point of time in my life because it was Northern California, mid-90s, all of this excitement around beer and wine and small wineries from Napa, Sonoma, um, small breweries. They would come into the restaurant and do a special dinner each week. And I got to hear their story. I got to, yes, try their wine. Um, 
in the back with no one watching. And that's kind of where I loved, I, I fell in love with wine more for the stories actually than the taste. It wasn't until I got into college where I learned about beverage costing that I was like, yeah, wine, beverages, that's my thing. I like that. You make a lot of money when you sell wine and wine and beer, if priced correctly, I should say. <laughs> That's great. I too was once a server, and I think um, you do get exposed to different tastes, whether it's wine, food, um, especially if they're vendors. Um, I grew up in the Niagara region, and they want to be part of your your shelf. And so you were in a good area. It sounds like in California, just to be exposed because. That's really when, um, like, 80s, 90s is when uh, it became a boom time in California. So you were in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you share a little bit about, um, so I have a friend who's a sommelier as well, certified, international certified. Can you share a little bit about what that is? What the heck is that certification? And what does it mean that you're in the court of master sommelier and does it come with a fancy hat? Uh, sure. So the Court of Master Sommeliers is a large governing body um, for wine professional certification. And there are four steps with it, or four levels uh, within the certification. Um, the top, of course, being the Master Sommelier level. And first is intro, second is certified, then there's advanced, um, and then, of course, master. So certified, uh, we actually now offer it on campus because a lot of my students want to have kind of the introductory level certification, um, especially after taking both my Introduction to Wines course at Cornell as well as other wine and beverage courses taught throughout the university. And then the certified, uh, so kind of intro covers the wines of the world. Um, certified takes that next step up. You have three parts to the exam. You have a service component where you are actually serving a master sommelier and they're asking questions. So you have the master sommelier and three invisible guests. Uh, I remember mine. It was his wife and parents. Um, sitting at different places at the table. So you have to remember where the women are sitting, where the men are sitting. And then, you know, he'll say, well, my wife would like, uh, or he, the gentleman who, who was my master sommelier said, oh, my wife would like this. And my mom would like this. Uh, my dad would like this. What would you recommend? And they were very particular uh, questions regarding wines or cocktails um, that they would that his guests would like. And then we moved uh, into food and wine pairing. So giving an entree, recommending a wine uh, with it. And it's not just saying, oh, I would recommend a Chardonnay. It's I would recommend a Chardonnay from the Green Valley of the Russian River Valley. You have to name the producer as well as the vintage. And they'll ask questions. Well, why did you pick this vintage over that vintage? And then the third part, um, oh, and then you move into desserts. The second part of the exam is a blind tasting, and the third part of the exam is a theory, um, multiple choice, and fill in the blank. Yes, so I equate sommelier expertise with those of like, I don't know, a baseball or hockey fanatic that knows every statistic of every team and the history that goes along with it, because essentially you have to know so much rich detail about you're right, the vintages, the winemaker, where it's from, what kind of um, flavors that are also part of that to talk about, and also mm -hmm. to, to pair. So I think it's so fascinating. It's, it's, it's an obsession, it sounds like. 
It is. And it's, you know, when you're working the floor in a restaurant, you have to be able to tell the difference on your wine list. Um, one of the restaurants that I worked at had a wine list that was 75 pages long, uh, 10 point times new Roman font in Excel. And it was a challenge to read. It was a book and I had to be able to say, okay, you're giving me three different wines. Let me tell you about them. Um, and you never knew which wines you were going to get. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's can, it can be definitely an obsession. And I, and I love the part you shared about it being about the story. I, that is, you know, when I think about having a glass of wine, I think so many of us just associate time with family, time with friends, sharing. And and I do especially like if I'm at a restaurant and the person can share a little story about the, type, the wine that, um, that we're drinking. Mm-hmm. Now, I know when we um, – is your – uh, wine class that you mentioned, that's the one that has the wait list that everybody wants to get into, but is much harder than people think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it, it does have approximately 650 to 700 people a semester. And, um, it's the infamous introduction to wines course at Cornell. Yes. So do you have to be a major in that or can anyone like buy and kind of sell their entrance into it? No, it's it's open to the entire university. And, you know, the story of the history about the class, um, it goes it dates back to the 1950s when um, a wine professional, he was an importer as well as a wine writer down in New York City um, through relationships that he had with alumni from the hotel school said, you know what, you all really need to be teaching a wines course because these these graduates are going to go out into the world of hospitality and you need to know wine. So he would drive up every week to Ithaca, teach the course and drive back. And then um, in the 1960s, Vance Christian uh, taught the course. He taught the course for 20 years. Uh, Steve Mikowski taught the course for 30 years. And then I was able to team teach with Steve, um, the 2013, 2014 school year. And then I took over the course in the fall of 14. Wow. And it's, it's a great story because Steve was Vance's teaching assistant when Steve was an undergrad and I was Steve's teaching assistant when I was an undergrad. Oh, that's awesome. Like the mm-hmm. apprenticeship model there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With uh, 650 to 700 students, how do you do the, um, can you just give us a little glimpse into what the class is like and how the students experience the wine tasting portion of it? Sure. We, I cover a region a week. Um, sometimes I do have to combine regions into one lecture, but it, the lecture is two hours long and we taste between six to seven wines per lecture. And, uh, the students on the second week of class get their wines kit and their special glasses in there that say, I'm a wine expert and it's, you know, Cornell on the front, um, the students are responsible for bringing those glasses with them every week. So I will have a point in the lecture where I say, okay, everyone open your glasses on the count of three. We, everyone opens their glasses together, sets their three glasses out on a plastic cafeteria tray. And uh, I have 26 teaching assistants 
that assist me in observing the student's pour, uh, we use the one ounce posi pours. So the students are physically pouring the wine themselves. The TAs are there just to make sure that they're not over pouring. <laughs> and then we uh, taste the wine together. I'm very methodical on my tasting, breaking it down into sight, smell, and taste. Uh, some of the students say I'm a little crazy <laughs> with some of the things that I smell, but that's, I say, hey, everyone is different. You might smell something that I don't get. I might smell something that you don't get. Do now, they think do you have a stronger palate or a varied palate from your experience? Um, I think, I think my nose, um, is, is stronger. It's, it's more my nose and then I confirm on the palate. You know, sometimes it's, it took me a long time, um, especially in blind tastings to differentiate between, um, you know, or to say really like, is it tannin, is it higher tannin or higher acid or, um, which was a challenge. Um, but then I learned some great tricks when I was studying in London. So, uh, and I teach those tricks to the students. Quick, t teach us like one trick because yeah. I think of my nose that's often stuffed up now, which hurt, hurts your smell and taste. I know that. But what are some tips you, you give? Um, so it depends on the person. And, and so I'll kind of, are you more um, colors or objects? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I guess colors. So colors, I kind of go through a color palette um, in my mind. And then if the color red is, is kind of subconscious in my mind, okay. And then I'll say to myself, okay, what, what are, what is the color red? Um, the color red can be berry fruit. Okay. Is it more cherries? Is it more raspberry? Um, is it a darker, more intense red? Okay. Are we looking at black raspberries? And for some students that has been very helpful, um, because, you know, you can be so overwhelmed that it's it's a way to almost attack it and deduce down rather than just saying, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm I'm so overwhelmed by the smell. And then when they're when the students are assessed, is part of the assessment them correctly tasting wines? No, not in the big wines class. Um, in the in the introduction to wines course, the there's two exams and there's matching, true, false, um, and and multiple choice. Just with the the large quantity of students, that would be very challenging. And also, but most importantly, more more importantly than logistics, is. I want students to be able to learn about wine, even if they choose not to drink um, for personal or religious region, reasons, because I feel that knowing wine is gets your foot in the door in a lot of business situations. So I've had students take the course that don't drink. They don't like alcohol and that's fine, but they still want to be able to have that conversation um, when they get to the business meeting, the business uh, dinner. Now, you, you, I mean, you bring up a great point about the importance of understanding wine for a business meeting. And, you know, in a lot of the podcasts, we've talked about, you know, challenges that women may have in certain fields. And I'm just wondering, in the, this field, um, is it more heavily, you know, male or female? And, you know, do you think that this is something that, you know, 
is more beneficial for women who are going into business or entrepreneurship? I definitely think women uh, should learn about wine and at least be able to talk it. Um, it's kind of like learning how to play golf and tennis, golf over tennis nowadays, um, because it's a social sport. And knowing wine evens the playing field where, you know, no matter your, your gender, you can still, you can still have a conversation. Um, and I've had both men and uh, male and female students actually send me emails, you know, oh my gosh, I had a 20 minute conversation with the CEO about champagne because of the champagne lecture in the wines course. And that was great FaceTime with the champ, you know, with, with the CEO and another guy got a, a promotion because he could talk the Loire Valley. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, I, I think it, the industry is dominated by men. There are a lot of organizations that are trying to increase exposure um, to female professionals, um, to give them skills, to give them communities, to network together. Um, but just nature of the beast, uh, it is a male-dominated industry. So with that in mind, I'm wondering if you have ever envisioned a fully online course you know, where you know, more people could then have access to this, you know, this knowledge, and where maybe the wine kits would be shipped out to them. <laughs> it's so funny that you mentioned that. Uh, yes, I don't think this is. I, I don't think it's um, um, confidential. I'm actually working with eCornell uh, to work on an online course for wine. So I'm in the Center for Teaching Innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I work with them quite a bit. That's oh, that's awesome to hear. So you will somehow ship the wine out to people? Well, that we're still working on logistics. We actually had a phone call this morning. Um, so we're, we're working on logistics because of how the United States um, alcohol laws are set up. It's not just... In one state, I can ship to all other forty, you know, all other forty-nine states. Um, dating back to prohibition, each state has its own liquor laws. Uh, some states are controlled states, some states are not. So, some states, the state government actually controls um, all of the sales and distribution of alcohol uh, within the state, whereas other states like New York and California, um, those are, are non-controlled states. So you have a three-tiered distribution center or system uh, within the state to get the uh, spirit or to get the alcohol to the retailer who will then get it or retailer or restaurant to then get to the final consumer. I live in a state-controlled one, Texas, so I understand. No, that's great. I think um, we had a class like this, and you said in my undergrad, and it was two hours for our hotel and tourism students. We could have other students join. It was 4.20 on a Friday, but no one could ever get into that class. And everything you've just said talks about social and cultural capital that you'd have out in the world somewhere, this knowledge. I think it's brilliant. So, um are there other things that you hope that your learners take away from this class? It's an introduction. It's a large lecture introduction. What else do you hope they leave with um, after they finish this course? Uh, 
I hope that they leave with with just an appreciation for for life and food and wine. Um, I talk just you know more because of my background as working the floor as a sommelier. I talk a lot about food and wine pairing, mm-hmm. and. I get students, they go home after class and they'll text me or, or email me pictures of their dinner and say, this is what I made this evening and this is what wine I tried with it and this is what I liked about it. And it's great because they're doing it with friends and they're creating that sense of community um, around food and wine and they're not on their phones. They are talking to people face to face, which I just think is fantastic. Now, is, are there any, you know, if somebody was a, wanted to be, at least seemed to be knowledgeable of wine in a conversation, are there any resources or, you know, suggestions you would have for somebody to at least get up to speed? Um, you mean in terms of, of being able to select wines off of a wine list or just have a conversation I would say a little bit of both being able to, you know, I think that first one. So for example, if I was at a business dinner so that I looked like I knew what I was doing when I selected a wine would be mm-hmm. good to start. Um, I love wine folly. I'm a very visual learner. I think they have amazing infographics and maps. I love maps. Um, wine folly also has kind of a, a good breakdown of the, of the grapes and the different flavor profiles that are within grapes. So, you know, re kind of understanding the basics from there. I mean, our textbook wines for dummies is a very quick, fun and easy read. So that too can kind of give you the foundation. Um, and so when you do get into the restaurant or business setting, you know, a grape varietal will come up and you'll be able to recognize it or a place can come up. You might not necessarily remember what specific grape varietals are grown, but you can remember at least kind of general body style um, of that of that region and uh, be able to select accordingly. That's great. So we, we've been using the wine Bible um as a little bit of a resource for this podcast, but I'll have to check out the wine for dummies. Mm-hmm. Well, and wine. So, um, I mean, wine Bible, Karen McNeil, she is amazing. Absolutely amazing. That is a fantastic book. Um, it's a, it's a thick book. <laughs> it's definitely it a book. <laughs> and that's, and that's why, you know, for, for introduction to wines, while, I'm not training people to go out and become sommeliers. I'm giving them the, the information uh, and tools necessary to become educated and informed wine consumers. And that's why I like the wine wines for dummies because it is uh, a fun, easy read. So students um, will actually do their reading, which is really cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they will do it because they get involved and it's fun. They'll read it over a weekend. Yeah. I like the setup of those books. It's, it's really accessible. Mm-hmm. So if you have a student that wants to go beyond intro and say they are interested in getting on the path of a sommelier, 
Um, where do you often refer them to complete this training and what kind of advice or time do you tell them to put, they'll have to put in to work on this? Cause you've gone through this and you know it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if someone is interested in pursuing further wine education, I definitely encourage them to take my beverage management course. My beverage management course is an advanced wines, spirits, and management of beverage in food service operations. And so we spend over a third of the semester really diving in even further um, to the regions of the world that we might have touched on an introduction to wines. You know, I talk about Barolo and Barbaresco, but we actually don't try one. Whereas in beverage management, we'll not only try a young Barolo or Barbaresco, but then uh, the students will have an opportunity to taste an aged one as well. So we can talk about uh, flavor differences, aromatic differences, pricing and cost differences um, for a restaurant and then storage, uh, you know, because it's, it's great. You can have old wines, but if they're not stored correctly, they're not going to be very good. So we kind of talk big picture um, through, through the wine that we're tasting. Oh, and then also from there, um, you know, Justine uh, and Kathy Arnick's class, uh, Wines and Vines, uh, up in College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, that's a fantastic class, too, that can help also support uh, their wine knowledge. Cool. And we'll link to that previous episode. If you did not get to hear, um, Justine talks about the Wines and Vines course a little bit. So thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. And then part of beverage management, too, they're also required to decant in front of the class, which for some students can be a very nerve wracking experience. But I say, well, if you're working in a restaurant, you're on stage. And if you're decanting at a table in front of guests, they're going to be talking to you and trying to distract you as you're decanting. So it's, I try and put them in um, situations that they will get in working in, uh, in beverage operations. It is nerve-wracking if you're opening a really, really expensive bottle of wine, and yeah, you have to you have to be on your A game. So that's good that you do that. Mm-hmm. And you brought so you brought up two things I'm wondering about. One is uh, price point. So is more expensive always better, and do you always have to decant? So more expensive is not always better. Uh, oh, there was a very interesting wine study. Um, oh, I can't remember. I can't, I, I will find, I will send it. I will find it and send it to you about pricing. Um, because people can be tricked. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they can be tricked into, you know, thinking that the expensive wine is actually better when it's not, you know, I, I would say, Hey, if you love two buck chuck or what's now three buck chuck, great. Go for it. You're supporting the wine industry. Um, you know, maybe you'll want to try another wine someday, and maybe that one will become your new favorite. So it's really, most importantly, drink what you like. That is my ultimate rule. Um, and to decant or not to decant, do you have to? Uh, if it's a young red wine that is from a moderate to warm climate that... Um, would benefit from air in order to soften um, 
the the mouthfeel, then I would recommend decanting it. Or if the wine is unfined and unfiltered and it's red, it could throw sediment. Or if the wine is old. Um, and that kind of old is variable. It depends on the type of grape. You know, Cabernet Sauvignon, Nebbiolo, Merlot, um, some Syrahs, they tend to throw sediment. Uh, or, you know, even when a little bit younger, so you would want to decant it off of the sediment. I mean, the sediment's not bad. It's just going to be um, bitter in your mouth if you drink it. And no one really likes to have a mouthful of chunkies uh, as they're finishing a glass of wine. And then, uh, you know, wines like, uh, older wines like Pinot Noir, you know, tend not to throw as much sediment kind of in their middle ages, but then will throw sediment um, in when the wine is older. So it, it really depends. So my, uh, my brother is a wine collector and I'm the lucky recipient of his hand-me-downs. Um, and so one of my favorite wines that um, he shares with me sometimes is a Turley Cab. And as I understand it, I think um, Helen Turley's daughter, maybe, um, is a Cornell alum. Helen Turley is a Cornell. Um, Helen's the Cornell alum. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, she got her master's. Okay. At Cornell. I really like, they have a cab that I really like a lot. And, and the, the Turley wines uh, do benefit from, a, or from air when young. So that, that would be example of a producer that I would recommend decanting. And, and this is another problem is some people, I unfortunately had a, a very green um, starting off his, his journey with wine uh, employee when I worked in Santa Barbara in the retail store. And one of our regulars who loved white wines, didn't like red, he was trying to impress someone and bought a very old bottle of Bordeaux. And the employee said, Oh, you should decant this for 24 hours because it's old and it will benefit with air. No, no, no. <laughs> the wine was water. It was just water by the time he, he drank it. Um, and he didn't, I mean, he, he paid, he paid over $300 for that bottle of wine. Um, he, of course, had a sip, and then I was like, no, you know, he was a regular. So I said, okay, take this one on the house. <laughs> but it was, um, you know, the challenge sometimes is decanting it for too long, and then you actually lose uh, some of the aromatics in the wine. So how do you know how long to do it for and which wines you should and shouldn't as an amateur? Um, if it's young, so if it's a young Cabernet Sauvignon, um, that could be, you know, decant and then pour a little in each of the glasses, allow that to aerate, um, as the guests are enjoying it. And then the rest will aerate throughout the period of the meal. Mm -hmm. Um, if it's, you know, and so that would be like on the short period of time. You could also decant maybe an hour, hour and a half ahead of time. 
uh, again, for young wines. For old wines, it's it's trickier because you, and this would be kind of eight years plus, um, I would say like eight to 15. If In the eight to 15 range, you need to consider, is it a warm climate or is it a cool climate? Um, if it's a warm climate, um, but not a super ripe year, see, this is where I'm still, it's, it's hard. Kind of a half an hour is a good rule of thumb. Okay. You're, so you're just to clarify for our listeners, when you say warm, you don't mean where you live or you mean where the grapes from? Where, where the um, grapes were grown and Correct. the wine was from. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. But you think about it, if, if the wine is 15 plus years old, um, it's, it's going to have, it's safer to do a short decant. Mm-hmm. So that means decant and immediately drink. Okay. That's not a problem in our house, so that's good. <laughs> so you have a lot of um, tastes and taste for food and wine, and, and we hate to ask you this because you're probably going to have too many favorites of your children, but if you had to pick a bottle, whether it's a certain varietal or kind of wine off the shelf, what do you go for? Hmm... Um, I am very seasonal, but if I, I get, I get asked this question a lot. If I had only one wine in the world, uh, what would it be? Okay. And to me, it's more of the emotional connection. Uh, California's infidel. Okay. Because I'm from California. Uh, I love specifically Contra Costa County, old vine Zinfandel. I'm from Contra Costa County. They actually found over a hundred year old Zinfandel vines, less than a mile from my high school. And I met a guy who made wine from them, uh, in the early two thousands. And I just, I freaked out. I was so excited. And this, the wine was good. Was it mind blowing? Yeah, no, not really, but the wine was really good. You know, it's that emotional connection. I know that place. I know that place, like the back of my hand, and it was just um, fun. So, yeah, I love California's Infidel, but, uh, for example, this evening I am having a glass of Domaine Ott uh, Cote de Provence Rosé because it's getting hot here. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can I appreciate both of those. Lovely glass of rosé. Yeah. Thanks. If we can switch gears just a little bit, I did want to talk a little bit about your consulting business and how you got into consulting and what advice you might give to somebody who wanted to go that route. Mm -hmm. So I got into consulting because I moved from California to New York and I had opportunities through business contacts and personal connections for a lot of work in California, but not necessarily where I was living in New York. And I, I loved it because I could go into an operation and really make a difference, make a difference in training the staff, giving them the confidence to sell wine really. And and I covered beer and spirits, uh, as well. And, you know, I mean, you both have been to a restaurant and you ask, uh, a server about 
you know, oh, can you recommend a wine from the wine list? And some of them look at you like you've grown another head or they're a deer in headlights. It's like, oh, no, they've asked us about wine. Um, And just to give a a staff member just basic talking points uh, is so exciting because then they get interested and they might read about it. They might um, pull out their phones while they're on break and learn more about the wines, and it only benefits the restaurant. So uh, that's kind of how I got started and uh, what I do. I look at service efficiency as well, um, and it was it's it's fun. You know, now I've I've done etiquette uh, training as well for for people. Um, I do wine tasting, kind of. All, all things beverages. I appreciate that you're doing the that wine service and a beverage service consulting for restaurants because, yeah, it is frustrating if you go in and if you were, especially if you were a server that had to learn like many, many wines from a list, that just a little bit of knowledge goes a long way for um, service and those who actually work on tips in North America. Uh, I think it does a whole lot to your experience and exposure at that restaurant. So good for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for doing that on behalf of patrons who shake their heads <laughs> at those who don't know. My pleasure. Well, and I want to say, you know, for restaurant operators, restaurants make money in beverages. They don't make money in food. Mm-hmm. And so a restaurant, a restaurateur that does not pay attention to their beverage program and does not give their staff the tools they need in order to sell, um, they're only hurting themselves. And, um, and so it's, it's I, I've always, I, I wrote my master's thesis on beverage costing. I love beverage costing. A <laughs> hundred pages on beverage costing. It's a little... People think I'm weird, uh, but it is, it's, it's exciting. And when restaurants do it right, it's a great thing for them. Yeah. I think that that is for the customer. So true. And sometimes so shocking that the, uh, when you get your bill, the drink cost usually exceeds the food cost. <laughs> uh, I like how you dine out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, Liquid I, diets. Yeah. Um, I discovered recently that um, you can bring your own wine to a restaurant and just pay a corking fee. So I've done that a few times in Ithaca, um, and that's just changed my life. But one thing, though, as uh, as people are listening to this from around the country, that is not legal in all places. Okay. So it's it's always best find out if it's legal in your area. Um, but if it's if you are going to a new area, it's always best to ask the restaurant. Um, one, do they allow corkage? And two, are there any restrictions to corkage? Uh, because some restaurants will say uh, you are not allowed to bring in a bottle that we have on our list. Ah, okay. Um, so it it kind of depends. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I did call one place and they told me I could bring my own bottle in as long as I had the receipt showing like, you know, where I had bought it from. Really? Yeah. That's weird. Wow. That's Which interesting. I, didn't. I mean, it was just like a bottle of wine I had in my house. Yeah, that kind of surprised me. So, yeah, well, in wine regions, they typically allow you to bring bottles in. That's because you're in a wine 
valley area. So that that's kind of where I grew up thinking about that. Yes, uh, and actually, great here in the Finger Lakes, um, the FLX Wienery, Christopher Bates's, uh, and his lovely wife Isabel's restaurant on the west side of Seneca. You know, if it's a local wine, they don't charge you corkage because they want people to buy the wine at the winery, and then they still have the opportunity to enjoy it with their food. Ah, that's a good tip. Mm -hmm. And then they have wines from around the world or, you know, outside of New York available for sale. Mm -hmm. Um, So is there anything that uh, we have not discussed that you'd like to share or any other tips for our listeners? What are your both favorite wines? Well, I shared mine. My favorite is the Turley. The Turley. Okay. I don't know if I have a favorite, but I know that we usually have a, a rotating house wine depending on where we live. And so I live in um, Texas at the moment. And actually, we have a thriving wine industry slash area in Fredericksburg that we go to. So our house wine has been either the Claret or this Merlot um, from becker vineyard and Mm -hmm. the family has like a lavender farm beside it and this little german town where it is has kind of grown up in the last 10 years since we've moved here and uh it's kind of a a nice quaint area that we associate um i guess with texas or our now home and uh, i think like you said it's it's not that it's the best it's just kind of what we've enjoyed and we enjoy the experiences from going down to that area where there's beer, wine, cider now, and great food. And, uh, yeah, I I think that's probably where mine is now. Texas has an amazing wine scene. And the hard thing is they don't export. I know. They don't export to other states because the population is so big that they drink their own. It's true. I would have thought of Texas as a big wine place. So it is number four uh, right now in the U.S., and it will be interesting because, um, sorry, it's number five. Um, it will be interesting to see uh, what happens if it becomes number four, if it surpasses Oregon. We produce a lot of grapes too and do ship a lot of wine as well as production. So that's probably what's not known, uh, Patrice. Oh. So, who are the, so Texas, Oregon, who are the top three? So you have California, Washington, um, quantity is then New York, um, Oregon, Texas, but number of wineries, California, Washington, um, Oregon, New York, Texas. Neck so and neck. Yeah. I say I'm always a little embarrassed to share this, but I've been in Ithaca for four and a half years and I have not been to a single winery here. Oh, that, yeah, you, I think you need to go wine tasting this weekend. Mm-hmm. I think I should squeeze that. I'm shaking my head at you, Patrice. You can't see me and neither can our listeners, but I've told her this a long time ago. It's a great area. The Finger Lakes is fantastic. Yeah. Wine, mm-hmm. cider, beer. It, it is. It's, um, I have to say I've been very lucky to live in wine regions um, pretty much my entire life. And, 
you know, the Finger Lakes is, there's just such a great energy here right now. Uh, you know, I moved to Santa Barbara after Sideways and it had that same energy. And I just think um, it's, it's going to do amazing things. Absolutely amazing things. Before we wrap up, I was wondering if there is a story that kind of resonates with you or something, um, whether it's an article, a poem, a film that kind of um, captures your experiences in wine. And you mentioned sideways there, so you can use that if you want. But if there's one that kind of resonates for kind of the work you do. Um, oh, there was that funny Italian movie in the 90s can't remember the name um i think well i'll I'll go with sideways because i can't remember the name of it's a big night oh okay yeah yeah. big night um i love that i love that movie uh growing up and and the food and that night but uh interestingly enough i moved to Sideways was the first movie my then boyfriend, now husband, and I ever saw together. Uh, and little did we know that we would both be that we would be moving to Santa Barbara together um, about three months after that movie. Oh. And it was just I loved loved living in Santa Barbara. Still have the most amazing um, friends in the wine industry from there. I just found out one of my friends, Dave Corey, who owns Core Winery, one of my favorite wineries, uh, just became got a promotion or got hired to be head of the viticulture and enology department at Hancock College. So very excited for him there. He's an entomologist by trade. And his wife, Becky, does all of their labels. She's an artist by trade. And I mean, it was just the the time and the place. He would deliver wine to the restaurant. He would bring in a dolly with three cases of wine. He had one child strapped on his front. He had another child strapped on his back. And that's how he delivered the wine. <laughs> Wow. And it was like, this is a small family oper- operation. The wines were amazing. And you just, you wanted to support people like that. Um, Cause they were working hard and just killing it. And now it's, now he's going to be teaching the next generation of winemakers in Lompoc. So super excited for him. That's awesome. What a fun connection to the sideways to moving there and that experience. Yeah. When we went, drove through Solvang, it was like, oh my gosh. I remember this from Sideways, the ostrich farm. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So before we sign off, are there any new projects or things you're going to be working on that you want to share with us? Uh, eCornell is going to be keeping me busy, but (laughs) always um, looking for for further education. Really exciting. Uh, since this will be airing in August, uh, Society of Wine Educators will be having their yearly conference in Rochester in in August. Um, next uh, in July, I um, I know because this will happen in the past, but going to Scandinavia um, to learn about food and culture and beverages there in um, Oslo, uh, Sweden, and uh, Copenhagen. And then just always learning from others. 
um, and doing some reading. I'm reading a really cool book right now um, by Daniel Deckers, who is, he actually writes for a newspaper in Germany. I met him several years ago when I was in the Mosul. And then I went back to become an ambassador this April, this past April, for the, the Verben Deutscher Pradikats Weinguter, um, the small group of 196 um, small estate quality producers in Germany from the 13 different regions. And he wrote this really cool book about the VDP and how it got started and the history of German wine, especially through the wars. Because we hear about the French um, wine with books like War and Wine, which was awesome, and Champagne and Wine. But he really is studying what happened to German wines, because German wines pre-World War One, I, I mean, they were demanding a price as high or higher than the famous wines of Bordeaux. Um, and then the wars hit, and threw the entire industry um, on its head. So it's, it's just very interesting. What's that book it's, called? Yeah. It's called The Sign of the Grape and Eagle hmm, okay. by Daniel Deckers. Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah. So when, the, when your eCornell course uh, launches, you'll definitely have to let us know. We'll, you know, put it out on social media, market it a little bit for you. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Because I think it's, it's going to be fun and approachable and just a great way to either refresh your knowledge if you already have basic understanding of different regions um, or kind of go into more depth um, about certain regions. So if any of our listeners wants to learn more about you, your work, your consulting, uh, what's the best space to find you or how can they reach out and reach you? Uh, best place is through Cornell. Um, my, do you post, uh, contact information or show notes or if you link to your website would be good. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. I'm also on, um, I should say the introduction to wines class, um, is on Twitter and Instagram. Cool. Is that um, I will. So it is. It's, um, it's bad. My students are always so much better at it than I am because they're, they are attached to their, their phones are attached to their hips. Um, but I love to do little reviews for my students, um, through Twitter and Instagram. It's also a great way for alumni to kind of check out, uh, what we're doing in class. And the handle for both, uh, Twitter and Instagram is at... CU, like Cornell University, HA 4300. So CUHA4300. Sweet. I'm going to follow that one. Check that out. Ah, perfect. There we go. Well, thanks so much, Cheryl. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to chat with us for the Invino Fabulous podcast and hearing a little bit more about what you're doing in class, what you're reading outside, and all your interests around food and wine. This is great. Thank you very much, and I'm so excited for everything that you're doing. Yay, women in wine. Woohoo! Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Enjoy your evening. Cheers. Thank you. You too. Good night. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast wants to continue the conversation with women and about wine. We'd love to hear from you. 
tell us what voices, stories, ideas, questions, and wine facts you hope we'll dig into next. Share on Twitter or on the hashtag InVinoFab, and we'll always welcome love or messages from you. Stay tuned for our next episode and listen to previous ones on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And remember, in wine, there is story. <laughs>